Many Christians who were brought up in the 1970s or 80s, particularly in America, were brought up with a 1972 movie entitled A Thief in the Night. It's a movie that's estimated to be, have been watched by around 300 million people around the world. The title is taken from 1 Thessalonians 5.2 about the return of Christ. Though Revelation, in Revelation 16.5, as well as verse 10 in front of us here, also speak of Jesus coming back like a thief. In, in that movie, A Thief in the Night, a young woman awakens to a radio broadcast announcing the disappearance of millions of people around the world. The radio announcer suggests that the event might be what some Christians call the rapture. Those of us who grew up in the early in the night in the 1990s or early 2000s might be more familiar with a series of books called the Left Behind books, uh, some of which have been turned into films. Uh, one of the main characters is a, a pilot, and the first book begins when this pilot and his plane are in mid-flight over the Atlantic, and this rapture happens. Uh, some of the passengers on the plane disappear mid-flight and when he lands the plane he finds that his wife and son have disappeared as well. In desperation he goes to his wife's church and finds that only one member of staff is left Uh, but thankfully the pastor has left a video explaining what to do in such an eventuality. And that sort of teaching is fairly mainstream Christian belief in our day. Particularly in America, but also in the UK, in gospel halls, in certain Baptist churches. The idea is that when the Bible talks about Jesus coming as a thief in the night, it doesn't just mean that he'll come suddenly, but that when he comes he'll actually take something That is, he'll come and and secretly take his church away and all the Christians on earth will vanish and it will only be unbelievers left. Those who hold to this view are called dispensationalists and they believe that God will literally pull his people out of the world before a time of great tribulation. And then after seven years of tribulation, Jesus will return visibly and reign on earth for a thousand years. Now, to be fair, not all Christians who believe in the rapture uh, believe that that's what verse 10 here is referring to. Uh, some will get it from other places, but uh, and particularly the uh, first. Thessalonians 5 too, but many, many dispensationalists do believe that verse 10 here is speaking about the rapture. But either way, uh, millions of Christians around the world today believe in something that was never taught in the history of the church before 1830. And that in itself should pretty much be enough for us to reject such teaching. Yes, the Bible alone is what we need to believe something. But Jesus promised that the Holy Spirit would lead us into all truth. And if the Holy Spirit hadn't led a single person 
to believe a key doctrine about the return of Christ for the first 1800 years of the church it can't give us such it can't give us much confidence that such a doctrine is true and yet in some evangelical protestant circles this teaching will be all that people have ever heard and these are our brothers and sisters in Christ it's not a salvation issue and yet it all goes to show that there is tremendous confusion in the wider Christian church about the end of the world and so I don't want to rush past a verse like verse 10 here and indeed this wider section of verses 10 through 13 because it spells out in detail what will happen at the return of Christ and so that's what we're going to focus on this evening we'll not have any headings as such but we'll work through these three verses asking the question what will happen when Jesus comes back what will happen when Jesus comes back Unbelievers scoff at the idea that Jesus will come back. They're happy to believe in a coming climate catastrophe or that the planet will get wiped out by a meteorite or that the sun will die in five billion years. They will not argue that the world will go on infinitely but what they are convinced about is what won't happen. And that is that the world won't end with the bodily, physical return of a man who was crucified 2,000 years ago. Uh, What they're convinced of is that the world won't end when God says it will end. Climate change, a meteorite, the sun dying, these things might end the world, but God uh, will not end the world. And yet, as we saw last week, it's because they forget the past They forget that God has intervened in this world before. Of course, God intervenes in this world all the time, but in the sense of sending a a, a climactic judgment. Uh, They forget that God sent the floods, which was such a devastating judgment that Peter here can talk as if there was an old world and a new world. In verse 6, he says, The world that then existed but that he means the same planet that we live on today. But, but he's talking about the world before and after the flood. Uh, at the end of verse 6 there he can say that the world perished. The old world perished. Uh, and i just file that away because that will be significant later on. That, that Peter can talk about the world before the flood. Which is the same physical planet that we're on as the old world. And as a world that perished. Uh, And that's significant when we come to think about what will happen to to our world now. And just as Noah preached about the coming judgment and people no doubt laughed at him, so we preach about the coming judgment and people laugh at us. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. That means that Jesus will come back at a time when people aren't expecting him. And when the day of the Lord comes, that will be it. It won't be that the Christians will disappear and that those who haven't yet believed will will have another chance to repent. 
When we look at verse 10, we can't squeeze a seven-year tribulation period into verse 10. Between the bit telling us about the day of the Lord coming and the bit telling us about the heavens passing away, it will all happen at the same time. The day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away like a roar. Verse 12 fills in more details when it says the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved. Verses 10 and 12 refer to the heavenly bodies, uh, that is the sun, moon and stars, most likely that they will, verse 12, melt as they burn. This world is going to be set on fire, Uh, that much is certain. Uh, the, The old world perished through flood, this world will perish through fire. Just as the world that, that then was, to use Peter, Peter's language, was brought to an end by flood, so the world that now is will be brought to an end by fire. But fire can do two things. It can either completely destroy or it can purify. Think of someone who's never seen a goldsmith at work before. and uh, The goldsmith gets a piece of gold and puts it between a pair of tongs and and puts it in the fire and holds it there and the person watching says what are you doing why are you putting something so precious in the fire but actually the fire is to purify it not to destroy it many Christians when they think of the end of the world think of the fire that's coming as purely in a destructive sense, that this world will be completely burned up without a trace of it remaining. Uh, and even to, to go back to the Reformation, that this would have been the view of the followers of Martin Luther. And again, um, so brothers and sisters in Christ have believed this, that the world will, will, will be completely annihilated. But actually... There's a fair bit of biblical evidence that suggests that the coming fire will be one which will purify and not destroy. That when the Bible speaks about the world being set on fire, it's a fire of purification, not a fire of annihilation. Just as the flood brought such devastation on the world that it was as if Noah was setting foot onto a new world when he got out of the ark. When the the wicked had been destroyed and the righteous remained, uh, so it will be again. Yes, verse 13 talks about a, a new heavens and a new earth. And we wouldn't want to build this whole doctrine on the, the, the different senses of words, but there are uh, two words for new in Greek. Uh, one has a sense of completely new, the other has a sense of renewal. And it's the second sense which is used here. And that is what the rest of the Bible would lead us to expect. This morning I mentioned that magnificent chapter in the middle of Romans, Romans chapter 8. And in Romans 8 Paul tells us that one day the creation will be set free from its bondage to corruption and that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. So this world is experiencing labour pains, Paul says. 
And what comes after labour pains? New life, not destruction. At this time of year, one of the most popular pieces of music is Handel's Messiah. Uh, originally written for Easter, uh, but, it, but in our day associated with Christmas. Uh, the words of it come straight out of scripture. Uh, and early on in, in that uh, composition, there's a quotation from the book of Malachi. Malachi is talking about the re- return of Christ. Uh, and he says, but who can endure the day of his coming? So he's talking about the day of the Lord, the day of his coming. And he says, who can endure it? Uh, And then Malachi goes on and says, for he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. So the picture there, even in Malachi, is that Jesus' second coming will be a time of purification. Think of somewhere in Australia that experiences a terrible bushfire. Animal habitats are destroyed. Homes are are ruined. People are even killed. But as time passes, eventually the grass starts to grow again. Wildlife starts to come back. New houses are built. The fire changed everything. It changed the face of the landscape. But it wasn't the end of the story. And that is an illustration of what will happen to our world. Another illustration, a biblical illustration, is to compare it with our bodies. Our resurrection bodies will be the same but different. Our bodies will be like a seed sown in the ground which one day will be resurrected and changed. But God won't snuff us out and create new versions of us. It will be the same people who are resurrected and glorified. And it will be the same earth that is transformed on the last day. It will be different in amazing ways, but it will be this earth. I wouldn't go to the, go to the stake to, to say that it will be a renewed earth rather than, than a, a completely annihilated earth. But, but I think that is where the biblical evidence leads. Uh, Charles Spurgeon put it like this. He says, this world, so far as we know, will not cease to be. It will pass through the purifying flame. And then he imagines this beautiful picture. He imagines the soft and gentle breath of almighty love blowing upon the earth and cooling it rapidly, putting out the fire as it were, and the divine hand will shape it as it cools into a paradise more fair than Eden. I think of a, a tin of beans, if you've ever thrown a tin of beans in a campfire and, and the outside, the wrapper, will, will quickly dissolve, but there will be a core left. But why does, why does this matter? Does it make any difference if the, the new earth is brand new or whether it's renewed and refitted? Well, the big picture is that Satan won't win. If God had to scrap this creation and start completely from scratch, then Satan still wouldn't have won the war. 
but, but he would have won it, surely a significant battle nonetheless. That he had managed to, to so ruin God's creation that God had to start again. But rather, if the fire that's coming is one of purification, then Satan won't even have that satisfaction. So sometimes we try and reassure people by saying, well, it's not the end of the world. But in a sense, even the end of the world won't be the end of the world. It will be the end of the world as we know it, uh, to quote a song by R.E.M., Uh, But the Bible suggests that it will be recreation rather than brand new creation. And that ties in with the end, particularly of verse 10. A a lot of ink has been spilt over one word of verse 10 in particular, and that is the final word. Uh, If you're looking at it in, in your your Bibles, in the church Bibles, you see a little, a little small 7 after the end of, of verse 10. Uh, that, that, that footnote down at the bottom explains that some Greek copies of the New Testament say that the earth and the works that are done on it will be burned up. Whereas older and generally more accurate copies say that the earth and the works that are done on it will be found The problem is, what does found mean? Well, it seems like the verse is talking about what will be left, what will be found when all the dross is burned away. And another passage which very helpfully ties in is 1 Corinthians 3. Uh, So it would be helpful to 1 Corinthians 3. Open, uh, uh, particularly at verses 10 to 15. 1 Corinthians 3, and in verse 13 there, Paul is talking about that day. That is the day of the Lord. It's the the same day that Peter is talking about in tonight's passage. Uh, And in the day of the Lord, verse 13, each one's works will be revealed by fire. And even for believers, Paul says here, depending on what material they build on, their works may be burned up. We see that in verse 15. If anyone's work is burned up, he himself will suffer loss, though he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved. They will be saved because their lives were built on the foundation of Jesus Christ, uh, and that foundation can't be burned up, but they will be saved only through fire. Their works will be burned up. But if they, if we have built with gold, silver, or precious stones, rather than wood, hay, or straw, our works won't be burned up. And so the works which Peter tells us will be found in Second Peter chapter 3 are, I think, the same works which will survive the purifying fire of 1 Corinthians 3. The world and the works done on it by God's people will be found. They will survive the purification fire. Peter uses very similar language in his first letter. First Peter 1 verse 7 where he says that the reason God sends us trials is so that the genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found for praise and glory and honour 
at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 1, 7. It's the same word for found. That's a question at the end of the verse we're focusing on tonight. So in 1 Peter, the word found is used in the sense of our faith surviving a purifying fire. And in 2 Peter, he seems to be using the word in the same way to refer both to the world and the works that God's people have done on it. For another uh, verse that ties in, we can think of Revelation 14, uh, a verse often quoted at funerals. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. They rest from their labours, for their works follow them. So what, what exactly that, that means, it, it's hard to know that, that, that our works follow us. But what, it, what is clear from all these, these passages, uh, and 1 Corinthians 3 and Revelation 14 are, are certainly the clearer ones, uh, what is clear is that work done for God by genuine Christians, well, if they build with the wrong material, it will be burned up. But there is also a work which will survive and surely we want our work done for God to be work which will survive. So let's not get distracted by things which won't last. Let's keep the Bible central to all we do as a church. Let's not get distracted from our mission. Let's keep the main things the main things. Let's, let's focus on, on the priorities that God gives us rather than the priorities we might take from from the world or even other churches. And as we think of our own personal service for God, as we were thinking about this morning, our, our service in the church, what are we building with? Are we building with, with material that might look the part, but which won't last when the fire of purification comes? So much activity goes on in churches, often by genuine Christians but will it survive the fire of testing? 1 Corinthians 3 warns us that, that much of it won't. But, but we are to build and strive that our works would survive the purifying fire. And what is important for our works is even more important for our faith. It would be awful on the day of judgment to see your life's work burned up for it to turn out that, that you've been building with hay the whole time but what would be even worse far worse unimaginably worse is if the day of judgment revealed that we hadn't been building our lives on christ at all if despite what it looked like to everyone else we'd built on another foundation if not only your works were burned up but you yourself were consigned to eternal fire. And so the biggest question about the new heavens and the new earth isn't what the newness will consist of. It's not how, how the new heavens and the new earth will, will relate to the world here and now. These are, these are questions worth considering, but, but they're not the most important question. Because the biggest question about the new heavens and the new earth is, will you be there? Will you be there? A theological college at the end of his final lecture, which was about the new creation, one of our lecturers said, 
At the end of the day, three years of theology means nothing if you're not there. He said, to miss this knowing what you know would be a tragedy beyond words. And the same is true to some extent for all of us. To miss out on this knowing what we know compared to the rest of this town would be a tragedy beyond words. So the biggest question about the new heavens and the new earth is, will you be there? The new heavens and the new earth, as verse 13 tells us, they are a place where righteousness dwells. And so the only way we can be there is if we're covered by the righteousness of Christ. The only way we can be there is if a great exchange has taken place and Jesus has taken our sinful record on himself at the cross. And in its place we're given his record of perfect righteousness. Boys and girls, one day there will be a new world, a new heaven and a new earth. This world will be burned up. And the only way we can be in this new heavens and new earth is by believing in Jesus. And if you do believe in Jesus, then you know that you will be there. The evidence that for us being there is that we will live a righteous life here and now. Because what a contradiction it would be to say that we're waiting for the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells, verse 13, and yet not to be seeking with the help of the Holy Spirit to live a righteous life here and now. And that's the, the connection with which Peter ends his letter and with which we'll finish next week, God willing. Verse, verse 14, he says, Therefore, beloved, since you're waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. Becoming a Christian, it isn't just about escaping hell. It's about beginning to live the righteous life that we were created to live. And that's what we will do in the new heavens and the new earth. In fact, verse, verse 11 even here, Peter makes a connection between the end of the world and how we're to live now. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Whether we have really understood the end of the world won't be seen in whether we can draw up a chart which says what will happen when. Whether we have really understood the end of the world is if we are living lives of holiness and godliness now. Because, uh, to skip down to, to verse 18 as we finish, our greatest concern is that he would be glorified not just in the day of eternity but here and now. And we do that by living the holy and godly lives we were created to live. Amen. Well, we respond to God's word by turning to Psalm 102b. Psalm 102b. Uh, we sang the, the A version last week. Uh, we'll sing the, the B version this week, Psalm 102b. The first three verses and then the last three. Page 243. Page 243.